there are 12 Saturdays that I'm going to be a little bit concerned about. You know, I don't know much about football, but I'm going to learn that real quick. That was Super Agent Scott Boris. He is one of the guests this week on A's Plus, the San Francisco Chronicles podcast on the Oakland A's and Major League Baseball. I'm your host, Susan Slusser, and today we have a draft-themed show featuring A's scouting director Eric Boda. Along with Boris, they'll be talking about top pick Kyler Murray. On the Player's Choice segment, for the first time, we have a manager, former A's player A.J. Hinch of the Astros. He'll talk about winning the title last year and uh, the Astros' domination of the A's this year. And finally, on Slus Plus, David Feldman, the stats expert, joins us for the first time. He and I will talk about the past week in A's baseball. Today on Ace Plus, we welcome in Ace Scouting Director Eric Kubota um, on a really fun day for the team. Number one pick, Kyler Murray signs and comes to the Coliseum for the very first time. Uh, Eric, what is this like for you, seeing all this happen after all your months and months and months of work? Yeah, this is like Christmas morning, Susan. I mean, this is kind of what we all work for. It's a fruition of all those days on the road and uh, all those, you know, hotel nights and, and things like that so this is it really is like Christmas morning for us how, how would you describe Kyler Murray when did he kind of show up on your radar well Kyler's a unique situation because he really showed up on our radar the summer before his junior senior year of high school only player to ever play in the Under Armour game for both football and baseball uh, Billy O Billy Owens saw him in the Under Armour game and and was kind of blown away then um, you know Kyler kind of dedicated himself to football from that point forward for a few years and shows up this spring at, at OU and um, from early on our guys were going hmm this is something different here so we kind of eased our way into it just because it's a unique situation but uh, the momentum for him really built as the spring went on and every guy who went in was really just blown away. How, how much of a, a sort of an outside the box selection is this because I, I went and did some research and looked and there are not many college football players that have been drafted even in the first round certainly none as high as nine that I could find right it's it's certainly unique I mean Kyler's a unique talent a unique individual and I mean you know a lot of times the guys you know the football guys are the guys that sign out of high school and then play four or five years of minor league baseball and go back and play football you see that a lot more often than the path that Kyler's taking, but uh, his his athletic ability is so unique, and his baseball instinct, the instinct for baseball itself, is is so unique that it's just a kind of all culminates in this different pick for us. Now, you uh, and other people at the team have mentioned the fact that because he has never played baseball full time, yeah. he might progress pretty quickly once he starts playing baseball every on an everyday basis. Uh, how do you kind of see that? Well, I, I think what's remarkable is is how well he did at Oklahoma this year after very so very few at bats. I mean, it's maybe a hundred at bats since high school. Uh, that's unheard of in college baseball these days. And I mean, for him to perform like he did. I mean, that, I think that's just an indication that there's some innate baseball instinct and talent, you know, that's part of who he is. So once he goes out and starts playing every day, do you think it could be fairly, fairly fast for him? I'm hoping, but yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I really am excited to see what happens when, when he gets four or 500 bats under his belt. Uh, now, Billy Bean was telling us uh, at the press conference when Kyler's signing was announced that um, he, he got this impression that the draft room, everybody was kind of leaning towards Kyler Murray and nobody really wanted to say it because they're like, are we allowed to say that? It is a little risky. And he finally said, Let, 
you know, you guys all want Kyler Murray. Let's do it. Is that is that uh, basically what happened? It's pretty accurate. I mean, there was certainly a lot of discussion amongst us scouts about Kyler as, as the spring progressed. But we all knew that uh, any discussion had to start with Billy when it came to this because it was a unique case. Um, I think everybody recognized the unique athletic talent that he is. And, you know, once Billy kind of, um, you know, when he said, you know, we should do this, it kind of took a weight off everybody's shoulders because, you know, once you know you're supported by your boss, it's a lot easier to, to kind of jump on board. Uh, now, the rest of your draft was also um, really good, really, very unusual. Um, there are a lot of good athletes. How, how would you characterize sort of the rest of the draft after Kyler, who was so high profile? Well, I, I think that the, the strength in this draft was like some athletic middle of diamond players. And we were lucky enough, you know, with, with uh, Jamison Hanna and Jeremy Ironman to get two middle of diamond athletic guys. So, um, you know, I think that was just how the draft played out and it worked out well for us. I mean, you know, you can never, that's, you, can, you can't teach athleticism. So um, starting at that, with that foundation is a huge plus for those kids. Anybody kind of jump out at you in the later rounds for people to maybe keep an eye on? I know a lot of people kind of look at some of those later rounds and kind of go like, who should I follow? Right. Well, our sixth round pick, Lawrence Butler, I think it was sixth or seventh round pick, Lawrence Butler. Uh, he's a high school kid from Atlanta. He's really young. He's only 17. Um, our scout, Jamel Spearman in the area, really, really loved him. That was his guy all spring. And just a, a ton of upside. So it's going to be fun to see how Lawrence develops over the next four or five years. Now you kind of uh, hand all these guys off after they're drafted, um, but what are your impressions of how last year's class is doing? What, what would you say sort of like looking back a year at, at what they're doing now? Yeah, I mean, I think we're extremely pleased with the with how last year's guys are doing. I mean, Austin Beck is obviously hitting very well in a very notorious non-hitters league in the Midwest League. So um, the average has been good. Um, we know that the power will come as the weather warms up. Um, so, and he and Nick Allen, both young kids, are doing well in Beloit. And the kids that are in Stockton, I mean, everybody's kind of done what we'd hoped they'd do. So, um, next year's draft, do you, do, when do you start looking at it? Do you start? Do you give yourself a month off, or do you, are you already kind of looking? We have. There's a, an event going on right now in, in the Dome in St. Pete, and we have four or five scouts there. I leave Monday for. Uh, tournament of stars and uh yeah we're full full speed ahead for 2019 wow so it just really never ends I, I, how how many hours of sleep do you get in like the say the week be leading up to the actual draft uh it's not really great during draft week <laughs> uh, you know i try i'm i'm older and wiser now maybe so i try to to get a little more sleep um but there's still a million things running through your head during that week so it's not even though i might be in bed longer i don't think i'm getting any better sleep and give listeners kind of a snapshot. How many scouts do you get in the room? How many executive scouts? How many people do you do you wind up having sort of at a time in there? Right. Well, we we bring our whole scouting staff in. So that's uh, 20 over 20 area scouts, uh, four supervisors who each manage a, a region of the country, a uh, couple of cross checkers, and we have a lot of special assistants here too with Grady Fuson and Scott Hatterberg, Billy Owens. Um, so they're there. Our whole front office is there. Um, it's you know it's it's a long hard week but it's it's kind of what we work for all year just like you know like this is christmas morning and opening the presents that's the wrapping of the presents and uh you know we it's we kind of live for that so it's a great week it's a hard week what was the reaction like in the room when you guys did have kyler murray there at nine um i mean you know 
I think most everybody was excited. I'm sure there's some guys who had a guy that they wanted to take at nine that were might, maybe a little disappointed, which is it's just human nature. But um, I think just the the dynamic nature of who Kyler is really kind of energized the whole room. Now, Kyler, we, we asked him for a comparison, like who, who he gets compared to over the years, and he said that the number one person he hears is Ricky Henderson. Uh, have you heard that before? What do you think of that as a, as a comp? Uh, I... <laughs> I really don't want to compare anybody to the maybe the greatest player in franchise history and my childhood idol. So um, I think, you know, I, I like Kyler's answer. I think Kyler has the kind of ability where people are going to be talking about who the next Kyler Murray is going to be. That's phenomenal. Eric Kubota, thank you so much for joining us on A's Plus. And again, another wonderful job on the A's draft this year. Thanks, Susan. We have an unusual visitor for A's Plus today, uh, the super agent Scott Boris, who represents the A's top pick, Kyler Murray, taken with a number ninth pick overall in this year's draft. And of course, as everyone knows, a two-sport athlete and also Oklahoma's quarterback. Scott, um, obviously you've known his uncle, Calvin Murray, for many a year. I think you represented him. Um, when did you start to have an idea that Kyler Murray might be a, a real baseball potential prospect? Well, in high school, uh, obviously, we watched him play since his freshman year. And uh, growing up in Texas and being an elite athlete, obviously, football was what his he made his name. He was a Texas high school player of the year and and uh, highly recruited by all the Division One schools. And frankly, could have signed out of high school, but we collectively thought that you know, Kyler really wanted to examine the football aspect of his life and attend college, and so we uh, really let this dynamic kind of unfold, and it was really, we started looking into it after his, you know, football season, he got into college baseball, and then we started to see his performance against Division I athletes, and with very little, very little practice and playing time, he was doing remarkably well at that level. Is there something special about two sport athletes, particularly when it's football and baseball? Because we've seen so many of them come through the major leagues and really make a mark. Well, the the truth is that in baseball, most areas when you're a great athlete, you're not really that great of a football player. Where you're gonna, you're probably more of a baseball player, so you don't play football. But when you're elite at both, and you, those are a special few. Um, that uh, then all of a sudden you see an envelope that is, it's just a small group. A lot, there's a lot of football players that can run and throw and they have a method of hitting which is contact only. Uh, they really don't drive the baseball. And they've actually, they're such great athletes, they actually get to the big leagues with that philosophy. With Kyler, he's a true, he can drive a baseball, he's a hitter. And uh, you know, he's a true center fielder. He's, you know, he has arm strength. He's just got all tools, you know. Now, since you know him very well personally and have for a long time, how would you describe him just as a person? Um, you know, Kyler's taken on a lot because he has been under the microscope of an uncle who's a Major League Baseball player and a father who is also a pro baseball player for a while, but a, a brilliant uh, collegiate quarterback and athlete. So the Murray name in Texas... Uh, is well known and he grew up with that and uh, certainly had a discipline about him. He was the youngest child in the family and uh, he has always been 
a young man with a focus, and that that discipline and focus has really allowed him to learn the playbook, learn how to be a, a true a force on a Division One football field, and all the while going and playing baseball at the Division One level, uh, while he's studying football and get remedying for spring football and getting ready for a draft. That component is something few athletes engage. Now you and Billy Bean have been friends for a long time and you've worked together on numerous deals. What was this one like? Well, Billy and I had a strong agreement about who the best athlete was in the draft. The common prohibition from the teams were is that they don't want to use their draft picks for unknowns, not athletically, but as to the direction the player was going to go. So my knowing that, I told Billy, I said, let me get an earnest direction and I'm going to let him know that, you know, we're baseball people. Um, and his uncle being a major leaguer, we sat down, talked about the commitment and said, you have to commit one way or the other. Otherwise, you're just going to have to commit to football or baseball, one of the two. And, and he, he, in the end, said, I want to I want to live out my commitment to OU, my teammates, and then I want to play baseball. So I had the most difficult job of doing something that's never been done before at the major league level. But to be honest with you, Billy was very understanding from his own youth days of being a great football player and, and a great athlete as well. And I think that he really uh, understood what it would have been like to give up football prematurely because he did that. And that personal feeling really related to the idea that he understood why a committed baseball player would have to fill that, fulfill that football commi uh, commitment to actually be the most committed baseball player. And both sides seem like they're fairly comfortable with the idea that he will play one more year football and then he will give up his, his forego his senior year. Certainly that's, uh, that part's not the question. There are, there are 12 Saturdays that I'm going to be a little bit concerned about. And once we're through those, I'll, I'll be a very happy baseball man. I think everyone feels like that. How is their offensive line from your understanding? Uh, you know, I don't know much about football, but I'm going to learn that real quick. Now, you represent several A's players and some players in the system. You've got Matt Chapman. You've got James Caprillion. As I mentioned, you're close with Billy. Uh, I'm not going to put you on a spot about long-term contracts for some of your clients, but can you see a day where the A's do start to sign some of these cornerstone guys to longer-term deals, especially when maybe the stadium situation is more clear? Well, certainly it's not the beautiful area we're all raised in. And the ownership is a very, very successful group of business people where they have the wherewithal to do what they choose. Um, so those components are in place. Uh, the baseball organization operates at a, an amazingly efficient level. Uh, they're, they're some of the best that they in the game of what they do in baseball ops. So the idea of it is, I think, for ownership to really connect uh, with the community and put the anchor of a franchise in the ground to where everyone involved, uh, players, people who advise players, families, baseball ops, and the ownership themselves where they can really say, we now are going to have a, a plan of solidifying a championship caliber team where we really know what our direction is geographically. Once that happens, I think things change 
players are looking at the A's for what uh, the, the promise of their baseball intellect and baseball ops, uh, what's done on the field, and frankly, where players know they can stay and they can really create a career and, a, and buy a home and, uh, and really treat it as a lot of other quality franchises are treated. You're from Northern California. Your son was with the organization. I know you've always had kind of a soft spot for the A's. Do you have a um, preference over whether they have a waterfront ballpark or whether it's here at the Coliseum, or do you just want to see the thing get done? Well, <laughs> my, my, my preference is obviously that you want to facilitate the best locale so that the most Bay Area fans have the ability to get uh, with ease to the ballpark. And I don't know enough about the traffic patterns here uh, or where the communities are. Uh, I know that South Bay is a, there's a lot of people that contact us that are doing very well in the Silicon Valley. And, you know, this whole area has such promise that there is every reason for a franchise like the A's to be successful because I think the fans, once they have a, um, a philosophical belief that the team is theirs and then they have a, a facility to go to that they can take pride in, I think you'll see an overwhelming success as you have in San Francisco. Yeah, I think what we're all looking for is the day that Kyler Murray comes up to the big leagues and that it's a nice brand new A's stadium somewhere here in the East Bay. I'll be sure to buy season tickets. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Thanks so much for joining us, Scott Boris. All right, Susan, thank you. Today we welcome into uh, A's Plus our first ever non-A's, uh, current A's member, A.J. Hinch, of course played for the A's and is now managing the Astros. A.J., first of all, tell us all what, what last year was like, um, winning it all. It was incredible. I mean, I, I, you know, obviously we'll call it the highlight of my career no matter really what happens because we were able to bring the first ever championship to the Houston Astros. I mean, me as the manager. Uh, I mean that story is is has been crazy. Just the ups and downs of a, of a career, all over baseball, and and uh, to live it through the city of Houston, you know, through the players, and 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 come away with the ring. You always talk about all you want to do is win a ring, and then when you actually do, you don't know what to do with it. But it um, it was a year of a lifetime that that I'll always remember. And of course, things all started for for you here in the major leagues. What what do you kind of take with you from your days in in uh, Oakland, especially having worked with Billy Bean sure. and people like that? Well, I mean, I, every time I come back here, you know, I can't help but think about 1998, the year I debuted here, and uh, you know, I was Billy Bean's early in his career. Sandy Alderson was still here. Grady Fusan, uh, the people that really cemented uh, my entrance into the game, the reason I became a professional, and and what I learned, and and. You know, I, I feel like as I joke with guys, I had to play the game in order to get to this position, and 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 I felt like that that foundation that was poured. I believe in on base percentage a lot more than I used to. I believe in in defense a lot more than I used to, and I believe in in strong starting pitching, which is what we have. So I, it's amazing the lessons you, that that you learn early in your career, and um, you know the the managers I played under here, Art Howe, I played under Ken Maka, I played under. Those are. Uh, Bob Guerin was here when I was as a as a AAA manager. Um, I've taken something away from every stop along the way, but the foundation was poured here in Oakland. 
And you work with Bob Melvin too in Arizona. Yeah, Bob and I were together in Arizona. I replaced him, in, in, which was very uncomfortable because of our closeness. And I was in the front office at the time. Bob was um, was coming off of a very successful playoff run in 2007. In 2008, we had a rough year. And in 2009, you know, partway into the season, I get asked to be the manager. And um, and now I manage against him in the same division. So it, the world, the world has a funny way of, or baseball world has a funny way of bringing you back to the people that you're always close to. So I, um, and I learned a lot about managing from Bob. You know, just being on the road trips with him, being in his office at pre and post game. Um, my temperament's very similar to Bob. We're very even keeled guys, but have a little fire inside, and I think we connect well with players. So I've modeled a lot of what I believe in uh, around Bob. Now, obviously, you have the defending champion team, a very good team, but you have absolutely drubbed the A's nonstop all, all season. What is the explanation for that, the, the absolute dominance? Well, I think I think part of it is, um, you know, when you play teams, sometimes you can catch teams when they're really hot. When we're really hot, we do this to a few teams. It's not just the A's, but the, um, you know, a lot of it surrounds putting pressure on, on young pitching. You know, when their guys are... Um, are struggling with the strike zone. We seem to come up with big hits, you know, when they when they give us a few few free bases. I think defensively, when they've given us some extra bases, and, and we've we've taken advantage of them, and 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 ultimately we wear teams down. And so I, I think um, when we come in with our starting pitching, and, we, and when our when our best players are hot, um, we can score runs in bunches. You combine that with a developing team who's who's a lot better than it was maybe a year or two ago, but but still not quite. Uh, fully developed, we can we can put up some big numbers. And plus, you have Evan Gaddis. Evan Gaddis is. I mean, I think he would want to play in Oakland, you know, year round as a visiting player because it. Uh, we've seen him hit balls over his head off the center field wall here. We've seen him um, hit balls through the night. And you know, they always say the ball doesn't carry here at night unless until Evan Gaddis hits it. Um, it's it's been remarkable to watch him, you know, almost single handedly put up enough runs to, to to win games. What do you think of the direction the A's are going in? You know, I, I love the, the the direction they're going in because of the the, the, the pace of play is different. They're they're uh, they really do have some cornerstone guys. When you look at what Chapman can do at third base, and you look at what Manaya has broken through as a as a guy that you circle on the calendar when you know you have to face him. Um, they've got some sprinkled in a couple veterans with Lowry and Semyon's getting a little bit better. And now that Fowler's up, there's 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 things to be excited about. Um, and I know there's more on the way. They're even more excited about some younger players. So I, their identity is very well defined and how they're how they need to play to win. Um, it's going to take a little bit of experience and a little bit of health and, and getting some guys back on the mound that uh, that they've lost over the last year or so. But um, I, I, I think they're they're better because of the. Um, just that the, the overall tone of the team has changed and gotten a little bit better. Thanks for joining us. AJ Hinch. You got it. Today we welcome in David Feldman, the great official scorer and statistics guru to what we're calling on d- days when John Shea isn't here, we're, we're calling Slus Plus, I guess. David, welcome uh, to the podcast, and you are an avid follower of all things A's for essentially your whole lifetime. Your dad, I know, grew up an A's fan in Philadelphia when they were the Philadelphia A's. First of all, uh, tell us a little bit about your family connection with the A's and how neat it was to see your dad throw out a first pitch recently. Oh, yeah, thank you. Great to be here, Susan. Yeah, that was fantastic. My dad, who grew up in Philadelphia, yelling at County Mac, uh, became a baseball fan probably he says like really following you is in 1945 that's wow. been a long time following the A's 
my family, when I was six months old, moved to the Bay Area about three weeks before the A's played their first game of the Coliseum. So the love of baseball is right there. The A's were back. My dad was back and uh, just grew up going to baseball games. Uh, my dad went to every World Series game in the early 70s, and by the time I was probably six, seven years old, I was already going to 10, 15 games a year, and I just loved it. And from there, it just grew. It became, I wouldn't say an obsession, but close to an obsession. Uh, and I had a pretty good mind for baseball, for remembering things. And I just kind of took that and went to games. And because of luck, ended up working on the TV side and then eventually becoming an official scorer. Yeah, we uh, in the A's media, the press corps, we are so lucky because between you and Mike Selleck, we are covered by two people who know more about A's history and remember it, like can like call, bring it to mind, like almost instantly. We're so lucky. Um, we we rely on you a lot, as you know. <laughs> um, now, <laughs> David, um, uh, the obviously the A's most pressing issue it appears this week is Matt Chapman with the uh, hand injury, which we we know he also had toward the end of last season during spring training. He had a cortisone shot during spring training, so about. Three and a half, four months ago, um, it, which seems to no longer be effective. Uh, what is your take on this injury and, and what it might mean for the A's, especially with Chapman? Um, we know about his spectacular defense, but it seemed like he had just sort of started figuring out at the pl- figuring it out at the plate. Yeah, offensively, he was becoming much more consistent. Uh, you're seeing better swings and better contact. It, it's tough because, you know, your cornerstones of, of this A's team going forward, uh, Chapman and Olsen, um, you want them to get as much experience now uh, as they can. They're only going to get better the more they play. And this is a bit of a setback uh, with Chapman's progress. As a team-wise, it's really tough because the A's don't have a third baseman. They don't really have a third baseman in the system who can come up and play. And instead, you're looking about changing things around. And you're going to hear Franklin Barreto's name mentioned again. But Franklin Barreto, in his professional career, has never played an inning at third base defensively. Uh, so I don't see them doing that. Now, could they move Jed Lowry to third base? I guess, but Susan, what would Jed Lowry think of that? Yeah. He doesn't like playing position, moving positions during the season either. He's made that very clear. He get he gets a little set in his ways, which is fine. That, that's what works for him. Um, I would I would imagine it's Chad Pinder, and um, they, you know, uh, wind up having to use someone else in more of a utility role. Yeah, and this is, the way this roster is made up right now, it's not terrific. It's so right-handed. Uh, and part of that is not having Matt Joyce, right, because he was your left-handed hitting outfielder. But you have all right-handed hitting outfielders. You have all right-handed hitting outfielders, except for a couple switch hitters. It's not a great makeup. And it, it leaves Bob Melvin hamstrung in certain situations. There's just not a lot he can do, and including the fact that you're only carrying three guys on the bench anyway, one of them being the backup catcher, who's also right-handed. Uh, it's just not a great makeup. And so now losing Chapman, you're going to fill him in with Pinder. It's going to hurt your bench a little bit. And again, if you bring Barreto up here, is he just going to sit? That's no good for his progress either. Um, I don't know. It's, it's a tough situation. Yeah, it is. You know what? I disagree with a Barreto coming up and sitting hurting his progress, though. I always say if it, if a guy can, can't come up and sit for a week or two and uh, wind up being a productive major league hitter down the line. I, I don't think that they were going to be a productive major league hitter. Coming up and watching what other guys are doing and watching major league pitching, all of that, even if you don't get into the game, it's not going to set you back. It's probably going to be more of a positive than negative, in my mind. 
uh, he's certainly spent enough time at AAA where I don't think it's that he needs more AAA time. Everybody needs regular at-bats, but he's never been up for, you know, more than sort of a 10-day stretch at a time. So um, I, 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 I think that's a little less of a problem. I would, that said, if Chapman's out of the lineup, I certainly would like to see Franklin Barreto get some playing time if he comes up. Um, uh, you know, we've talked about him as a potential outfield. You know, he has played some in the outfield in the minor leagues. I don't know if they might do that with Pinder playing, potentially playing third, or if they might throw Barreto in a third, you know, it's that, that is going to be an interesting question. Now, um, I assume that what the A's hope is another quarter zone shot rests a few days and is okay. I'm not even convinced this is necessarily a DL situation for Chapman. Um, but then the problem is the short bench. If you're going to be without a guy for three days and you already only have a three man bench and one of them's a catcher, Oof, that is really, really hamstringing the manager. So uh, I've never liked their three-man bench. Uh, in fact, I thought in the last CBA that the Players Association really should go uh, much harder for a 26-man roster. The way bullpens are used now, I think that would be really, really behoove. The injuries are going to be a problem when you wind up with such a short bench, and uh, I just don't think that that's a good thing. So, and and more jobs. I'm always in favor of more jobs. So let's, uh, for the A's sake, I, I think we everyone would hope that this is just a short uh, cortisone resolves its situation. But if it is a chronic injury, at some point, Matt Chapman is going to have to deal with this because there's a limit to how many cortisone shots he can have every year. It is uh, not prescribed uh, for constant use. So uh, that that down the road, I think uh, potentially as a long-term situation, that's really the more worrisome thing. Yeah, and if you look at more long-term, you've got to start thinking, if Chapman's going to be unavailable, who can we use to play third base? Right. Now, um, the A's uh, last week made a lot of news with their very unusual draft. Um, we know how much they like to kind of think outside the box, but this is the first time I can really remember them applying that to the draft and taking a college quarterback, a very high-profile college quarterback, Kyler Murray, with the number nine pick overall, which is uh, doing some research on this, David. I think this is fairly unprecedented to take a college football player this high now Joe Maurer was a standout football player when in high school but he gave that up and went straight to the major leagues he did not play a down of football obviously the oh, the highest draft pick who is also a football player I could find was Josh Fields who was uh, number 18 overall but the really well-known guys were second third fourth round um, you, you know Bo Jackson John Elway guys like that those were all much. Russell Wilson was a fourth rounder. So this is um, this is really unusual. It's risky. Obviously, the injury possibility is is got to be a concern. He is Kyler Murray is going back for one more year of football at Oklahoma, uh, and yeah, he has not played as much baseball as a lot of his uh, peers. So what what do you make of this selection? I really like it. To be honest with you, I, I like that it's out of the box. The baseball draft, as we know, is such a crapshoot with most of these players. It's gotten a little better now because college baseball has improved a lot, so you have a much better feeling for the talent of guys. But still, overall, you're just you're guessing and you're projecting. Kyler Murray, great athlete, and he showed baseball-wise this year. He really improved playing in a, in a tough league, hitting 296, uh, showed some power. Terrific athlete, right? No question about that. This guy's going to be the starting quarterback at the University of Oklahoma. So, athlete-wise, off the charts, which I like, because as you saw watching Houston Astros this week, 
when you have a team full of athletes, uh, it's really fun to watch. It makes for a really good baseball team. Um, Tyler Murray fits that mold. Now, yeah, is it a gamble? Of course. And you're going to, you know, you're going to pay him a lot of money um, and hope that he doesn't get hurt playing football, but you have some insurances there, so the money's not really that much of an issue. Um, it's really just saying that this guy is going to be able to be a tremendous baseball player, and he might be. And so I'm willing to take that gamble because it's, it's also a guy that's going to be in the spotlight. You know, A's fans are going to be watching this guy play for Oklahoma. You're going to know this guy. You're going to fall in love with this guy. I think it's a really interesting pick that, that works in many ways. Yeah, you know what? I The two-way guys, the, especially the football players, who have made the major leagues have come in with sort of a different presence to think of somebody like Samarja, Frank Thomas, uh, obviously Bo Jackson, Brian Jordan, guys like that. It's a, Football's a different experience, I think, when you're playing at especially big-time college football level. And these guys come in very mature incredibly responsible um they are usually very smart athletes uh and i I like this pick too i I, i'm not crazy about the risk of him going back to play football in in the fall especially with such a you know a number nine overall selection is is pretty valuable uh but both sides have taken out insurance policies i'm assured there there's not too much loss uh and the a's were this was a a something of a compromise i've had a lot of fans ask me why would the a's allow this uh, that allow him to go back and play in the fall. Well, there's a compromise. He is not going back for his senior year. So you have the possibility of Oklahoma, we know great team, potential national championship uh, contender. They could go and say, win it all. Kyler Murray could be a Heisman Trophy finalist and not be allowed to go back to his first senior year. If he did, he would he would have to forfeit that whole signing bonus. So, um, you know, he, he's given up something potentially very major himself. He, he has. And I think he, being uh, smart and having smart advisors, knowing as good as he is in football at, at the college level, the NFL is probably a reach for him, especially as a quarterback. He doesn't have the size that NFL evaluators look for. So this is probably the end of his football career at college anyway, where at baseball he has a much higher ceiling. So now he gets to finish up, play his junior year. As you said, a team has a chance to go to, to the playoffs with them, be one of the top four teams in the country. Um, and then he gets to go play baseball. It, I think it's a win-win. I think it's interesting. And because, you know, in the baseball draft, again, you're just you're guessing a lot of the time, this is a pretty good guess. And I think as we go forward, it's going to be fun to watch. Yeah, I've heard him described as a general, generational athlete, which, wow, if he pans out, um, that is that is really going to be interesting and, as you said, entertaining, plus a very wise move. We could be talking about what a, what a genius pick this is uh, for years to come. Uh, now, Jed Lowry got off to one of his annual incredibly hot starts, uh, was probably the best hitter in either league really, most most of April. He's cooled off significantly since then. We always like to talk, David, about Jed Lowry as a possible guy that they would trade at the deadline, um, and he seems to kind of go into a funk. There was very little interest in him last year. The A's obviously picked up the option in the in the offseason and um, weren't going to trade him this, this past winter. But what do you think of what's going on with Jed right now? And um, what kind of leading into that, what do you think what they might do with him in July and what they might do in July, period? Are they sellers? Do we, can we even know when a team is still sort of just hovering around 500 most of the season? Jed Lowry is an interesting case because he, he did this to a – to a point last year too where he gets off to a great start he's hitting 290 at the end of may and then 
June and July, you see his average start to go down. Uh, this year, tremendous April, uh, and now you're seeing his average go down again, um, which has got to turn some scouts of other teams off, right, because they're seeing a guy on the downslide now, and that's frustrating. And especially now, his June so far has been horrendous, hitting 159, but striking out a ton, and that's always worrisome. Um, so his value peaked in April. It's going down in June. But I don't think scouts as a whole look at these month-by-month numbers. I think they know what job Ted Lowry brings. And if you're a team who needs a veteran middle infielder who can come up with a clutch hit, I think he's attractive to you. So come July, I still think there are going to be contending teams who are going to look at Jed Lowry as someone can help them off the bench. I don't think anybody's looking at him as a starter. But if you're Colorado and you have Nolan Arenado, you have Story at shortstop. You have Lemayhew at second. You're set in your infield, but you want to add to your bench where you're a little weaker. You have some young players. Jed Lowry's the perfect place to go, uh, perfect player to get for your team. Now, you're not going to give up a lot, and I don't think the A's are expecting a lot, but I think these contending teams, no matter what Lowry's doing now or next month, they're still going to be interested in him, and they're going to, they're going to come after him just to fill a bench role. Um, and the A's have to listen. Look, look, you're in the American League. We already know there are four elite teams, right? Right now we have Astros, Red Sox, Yankees, and the Mariners. These, these four teams have separated themselves. So the A's hanging around 500, that's not going to be a playoff team. It's not going to happen. So you need to look to improve your team and to give your future a chance to play, which brings us back to Franklin Barreto. If you believe he's your future, you need to give him a chance to play every day and find out what you have. Uh, maybe, he's, maybe he's not good, and maybe this Donaldson trade turns out to be the worst trade of all time. Or maybe he is a player, but we need to find out eventually, and probably second base is that position. Uh, what do you think about uh, potential other guys they might trade? But say uh, Blake Trinan, Chris Davis could be very interesting. I, I'm not convinced that they would even consider moving Chris Davis. Uh, you know, obviously, if somebody comes in and offers a, a, a ton for him, sure. Um, but uh, as we've seen, the, the DH spot is not kind of getting those that kind of um, interest really. Uh, but Trinan fits the category of, of guy that the A's have moved in past summers and gotten some very nice deals for. Yeah, you would really have to listen to deals for Trinan. I think it's so important for teams who are, are learning to win to have a closer who can win games uh, and just shut the door. There's nothing more deflating than getting, in, getting your team a chance to win and then blowing it in the ninth because you don't have a reliable closer. It just It's deflating. And it's depressing. But when you have a guy at the back end who you know is going to shut the door, and in this case, Blake Trina can come in in the eighth and pitch more than one inning, it is a great luxury to have. And it, it, it breeds a winning atmosphere. Uh, I, I don't like giving that up. But on the other hand, again, you've got to see what people are offering. If someone's going to come and blow you away, yeah, you got to listen and you got to consider it. Uh, Chris Davis, I, he's power. He's pure power. And in this day and age, it's so hard to acquire it and to keep it, and you have somebody who seems to really enjoy playing in Oakland, playing for the A's, I don't think you want to move him. I, I think that power that he brings, it's, you can't give that up. No, and you talk about the importance for the younger players. He's important for guys like Olsen and Chapman. If you remove him from the lineup, that's putting an awful lot on two kids who are just sort of learning to be middle-of-the-order hitters. Uh, and, uh, you know, they, they look up to him. Same with Jed Lowry in, in, in many, uh, you know, he, he's been kind of the guy they all look to. They really watch his routine carefully. Uh, I agree with you on Trinan. However, I do think 
You know, relief pitching is a real strength of the A's minor league system. We're certainly seeing that with Lou Trevino coming up. Um, it might be a little early to throw Trevino into a closer role, but certainly it's something he could do down the line. Uh, and there, there's more coming. You know, they've, they've got guys like Bobby Wall is back on track. Um, Kyle Finnegan is uh, very well thought of, and, and there's, there's many more. So um, that I could see a little bit more, but you're right that uh, for the rest of the pitching staff, I think that would be a, a blow. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's been an interesting couple of weeks for the A's. Uh, were there, are there any other things that sort of jump out to you, David, as you, as you look at the A's and, and sort of close to the midpoint of the season? I just think their inability to win in their own division, it, it's baffling to me. I mean, I, again, we talked about these are good teams, Mariners, Astros, Angels. But if you want to be a contender uh, at all, you've got to find out to, a way to beat these teams. I mean, the Astros are just destroying the A's. Right, and this is, and you can see what they're as using a Joe Lakeup line. They're light years ahead of the A's right now. The way their team is is developed and what they have, and really, uh, that's tough. You're going to see this 19 times a year. You got to find a way to compete with them. Uh, you got to find a way to beat the Mariners. Since 2006, when the A's destroyed the Mariners, uh, basically won the division because of their record against them. They haven't been able to do anything. Uh, this is payback now for the 13th, 12th year. Yeah. Uh, they got to find a way to beat the Mariners. And we'll see this weekend with the Angels. The Angels come in, they're a little beat up. Um, you got to take advantage. But then you're dealing with Mike Trout, who's all world and is having probably the best year of his career. That's the thing that sticks out for me. The A's have to find a way to beat teams in their division. Yeah, there's, there's no doubt about that. It's interesting. The A's have been made um, a, sort of a patchwork out of their starting rotation because of the injuries, um, numerous injuries. They've used 11 starters this year. Uh, they've brought up guys for one start who've out of nowhere been sort of fantastic or gone on a little roll. Um, really, um, probably under the circumstances, better than anyone could have expected. But it can't continue. They really need to have a stable rotation, a healthy rotation. Uh, and, and right now, I, I couldn't even tell you what that rotation might look like just because there have been so many guys kind of going in and out. But um, the fact that they have sort of been able to roll with it despite all these injuries, what do you make of that? Yeah, it's been impressive. You know, guys coming in and out, you know, 11 different starting pitchers. You know, and Frankie Maltoff, yesterday, yeah, probably his, his worst start, right? But he competed through that whole start into the sixth inning. And, you know, if Chapman makes a couple plays in the sixth, he gets out of that. He never gave up the huge cricket number. He gave up one and twos. I was impressed by that. I thought he really competed against one of the toughest lineups in the American League. He had three terrific starts going into that. And this is nothing like the guy we saw last year pitching in relief and doing a home run after home run. So that, to me, is that's a thrill to watch this guy's progress. Um, you know, Paul Blackburn had a terrible start after a good start. He's still working his way back from injury to too soon to make any call on him. Yeah, he came, he came um, up at least to, to start early too. You know, probably two starts he, early. Yeah, for sure. And, and you know, Gossett, I thought was pitching better uh, until he got hurt. Uh, they're pitching it. They're, they're you know piecing it together, which has been impressive. But to be a consistent winning team, you need to be able to run your starting pitchers out there on a regular basis. Um, and until they get all healthy. Uh, that's not going to happen. So kudos for them for doing what they're doing, but it, it's tough to uh, keep going this way for the next three months. Yeah, that's a, when they look to midseason. Um, if they are, if they do think maybe they're 
buyers rather than sellers, which at this point is looking a little unlikely. Although, you know, honestly, they're, they're probably their take on it changes from day to day with their record. But um, <laughs> I would not mind them going out and looking for a decent, reliable veteran starter. They can be had at the at the deadline. Uh, I don't think they would have to get up and give up any of their sort of core young players or superstar minor leaguers. So um, I think that, you know, a little bit of better health there and then maybe one additional arm would be great. Now, David Falvin, you are going to be a regular here on the Slus Plus portion of A's Plus. Uh, <laughs> thanks for joining us today and we look forward to talking to you many more times this year. All right. Thank you. This show is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Our theme music is The Third by Anatech, courtesy of the Free Music Archive. This show is produced by me and Fernando Diaz. For more A's coverage, you can follow me on Twitter, at Susan Slusser. Check out all of our coverage at sfchronicle.com. Mm-hmm.